So, we're going to be in Hebrews 11. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We are in a series talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And so far, we've uh, hit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. And today, we're talking about faithfulness, what that looks like. Now, there's a lot of overlap in this list. Uh, and that's to be expected because they all come from the same source, right? The Holy Spirit. And my hope and prayer as we go through it is that um, each of the aspects as, as we've been looking at them, that we're beginning to open up our hearts to those as we learn little bits about them maybe, or as the Spirit shows us ways in which we need to be more like this. And so as those things are growing in us, we're opening up our hearts. The Holy Spirit is producing more and more of these things in us. Um, because we can't, ultimately, we can't ignore what Paul wrote, right? Or, or what Scripture teaches about these concepts. And I genuinely believe that the reason that the church is in the state it's in is, in part at least, due to our lack of faithfulness to the gospel. We've sort of been derailed, if you think about it. We've been chasing rabbits of various sorts. We're chasing rabbits about the, the end times and the apocalypse and how everything's going to end and all that. We've been chasing rabbits uh, in the Hollywood and about what kind of movies get made and what culture looks like and all the different things. We've been chasing rabbits into Washington and what all that looks like about our laws and ruling the nation. And We've made... Our, our culture a battleground instead of seeing it as a field ripe for harvest. Those are very different things. Now here's the thing. If, if I ask you to think of someone maybe that you consider faithful, none of that factors into what you would say, right? None of it. It's more about consistency, reliability, someone who keeps their word, so this morning, as we talk about faithfulness, we're going to talk about it by, by what's known in uh, various circles as the Hall of Faith, right? Hebrews 11. Uh, and we're, we're not going to read the whole thing. It's long. I'm going to reference it. We're going to read the first 16 verses. So if you will, follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Adam obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have, a, have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Okay, so, faith, right? It says the, uh, the writer of Hebrews says it's the assurance of things hoped for. And the word for assurance there is hypostasis. And it, it means assurance. It also means uh, support and steadiness. And so the idea is something that is reliable, something you can put your weight on and will hold you, something like that. And uh, there's an interesting story of a, a missionary, John Patton, I think his name was, and I think I may have told this story before, but he was translating the, the scriptures into a new language. It was in the New Hebrides. Islands, and he's translating into their language. And he was trying to translate John 3.16, and they didn't have a word for faith, basically, right? Uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes, which is have faith, that, that word should not perish, but have eternal life. They didn't have a word for believe. And so he <laughs> sat in his chair, and he sort of put his weight into it, Right? And he said, what am I doing? And they, they told him, you're leaning your full weight on the chair. And so he translated it as, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who leans his full weight on him will not perish but have eternal life. And that's kind of what this means, this assurance, this leaning our full weight on something, right? Uh, and literally, it, it means that. It, then sort of figuratively, it, ha it has this idea of an underlying confidence in the reliability of something. All of you came in, sat right down in the pews, right? You didn't, you didn't test it. You didn't shake it. You didn't push on it to make sure. You sat down. You came in. You, you trusted that, that it would work. It's that only in a bigger sense, right? So to read it all that way, faith is this underlying confidence in the reliability of what we're hoping for. Does that make sense? We have this hope. Our hope is of, of Jesus' return and of everything being made right and of all the bad stuff being unmade, right? So that the world 
remade, reformed rightly, correctly, as it should be, as that's what shalom is. We have this hope that Jesus is doing that already in us. We're like the sort of pioneers of that, but that it, eventually Jesus will return and sort of bring it all together. That's what our hope is. We have an underlying confidence in the reliability of that. That's what we're talking about. And so the question then, of course, is do you have an underlying confidence in God? I, I mean, I'll be honest. Sometimes I struggle with that. I, I trust God, and then sometimes I don't. That's just life. That's, that's, I have that sort of back and forth. I think probably all of us do at some level or another, right? But do we have an underlying confidence in God on the long term? There's going to be bumps, there's going to be hiccups, there's going to be struggles, but in the long term, right? In God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Do we really believe that? Do we really think that's what's going to happen? In the promise of resurrection? In healing? Do we believe in this stuff? In reconciliation? In restoration of things? Do we have an underlying confidence in the Lord to bring about His promises? To work in us and in the world for good? Or have we lost faith in such things? Sometimes I wonder. I mean, you look at, like I said, you look at the state of the church and it, it doesn't always look like their faith is in God. Sometimes it looks like their faith is in these other things. The second thing he says is that it's the conviction of things not seen. And that word is elenkos. And it means a, a proof or a persuasion to persuade someone, to, to win them over, right? And so it, it refers, though, in this particular context to an internal persuasion. This is not an argument being made by somebody who convinces somebody else that God exists and does good things. This is an internal persuasion, something that happens internally rather than an external one. It, it's, it's not about, in other words, it's not about like evidence and uh, like whether or not we found Noah's Ark in Turkey. It, it doesn't, that doesn't matter. Um, or if we found Pilate's name on some inscription over, it, it, you know, or pieces of the actual cross, you know, enshrined in these fancy gold. Y'all know that exists, right? There's pieces of the cross enshrined in, like, gold things in different churches around the world. I mean, maybe. I don't... It doesn't matter, though. That's the thing. Amen. This is about internal evidence. This is about what God is doing inside us. It's about a changed heart which is what we read in Ezekiel 36, 26, right? I will change their hearts. I'll put a new heart within them. Or it's about a renewed mind, which is what Paul talked about in Romans 12, 2. The renewing of your mind. A changed heart, a renewed mind. So if we bring all of this together, then faith is an underlying confidence and an internal persuasion in the things of God. The things that are unseen. Now, there's one more word that we need to look at here, and it's that word commend uh, or commended. And he talks about that. That word pops up in this passage a lot, especially here right in the first. 
And the word commended is actually the word martyreo. If that sounds familiar, it should, because it's where we get our word martyr from. And a martyr, we think of someone who has died for their faith, and, and it does mean that, but that's not what it originally meant to begin with. It, it meant someone who bore witness, someone who testified, someone who give, would give evidence, right? Uh, and, and so to, to be a martyr is to be one who tells the story of the thing that's true. And it came to mean someone who dies for their beliefs because the people telling the truth were being killed repeatedly. And so it came to mean that as well, right? But this talking about the people of old, which is our, our forerunners in the faith. We don't always think about it that way, but, but all the names listed in this passage are our forerunners in faith, right? They're our family, basically, stretching all the way back. And, and I mean, all the way back, right? Uh, and they bear witness. As, as he goes through the list, you see each of the names and then what he says about them. Their lives bear witness. Their faith testifies of the unseen things of God. And they trusted in God's promises even though they didn't see them all come to fruition. That's the nature of faith. And we see this explained in verse 3. He says, by faith, the universe was created by the voice of God. We believe that that's how things happen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How? He spoke them into being. Right? The visible made from the invisible. And in Hebrews 8, 5, he actually talks about this. He talks about how the physical, the world that we can see and taste and touch and feel and smell and all the things, that that world is, is a shadow of the spiritual realm. That the physical, it's real. This is all real, but that the spiritual is even more real, right? So we trust in the unseen more than the seen. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. A bit further in 2 Corinthians 5.7, he wrote that we walk by faith, not by sight. I was talking about this Wednesday night, and uh, I don't know how many of y'all have seen Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. It's a crazy movie. They're trying to find the Holy Grail, which they consider the chalice that Jesus drank from. At the, again, things that don't matter so much. But he gets to this one point, Indiana Jones is trying, he's in this cave, and he's trying to find his way through, and he's reading off this sort of list of clues, how to do all the things. And he gets to this part where there's this huge chasm, just drops straight down, and if you were to keep going, you would fall and die. That's what it looks like. And, and the thing says to take a step of faith. And so he kind of looks around, and you know, Harrison Ford takes his hat off, wipes his brow, does the whole thing. And then he steps into nothingness. And there's a bridge. And you can't see the bridge because it's the, the, the camera pans sideways and you see that it looks like all the rest of the rock and the chasm. It's actually there. It's just hard to see. And then it pans back and so he crosses the bridge and throws some dirt on it for the folks behind. Right? But that's, that's this idea. Walking by faith, not by sight. Sometimes taking a step of faith that looks like you're walking into nothing the thin air, right? Sometimes that's what it looks like. 
Are we willing to take that step? All this Paul says, though, he's echoing Jesus. In John 20, 29, when responding to Thomas, after the resurrection, remember Thomas did not want to believe unless I can see and touch and put my fingers in everything, right? The hole in his side. And that's Thomas. I totally identify with Thomas, by the way. I want to see, taste, touch. I want all the experience. I want it, right? I'm just like him. But Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen? This is after Thomas sees him. He says, my Lord and my God. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I mean, none of us here have seen, I don't think any of us here have seen Jesus, anybody? Right? Especially not like Thomas saw him. And yet we believe. It's that kind of thing. What this means is that faithfulness is a matter of consistently trusting in things that we can't see. And that's not easy. In fact, I think it's the reason that so many Christians have been chasing all those other rabbits that I mentioned earlier. Because faith doesn't work like we expect. We get frustrated with faith when, when we don't get what we expect or when it takes longer than we expect or when it takes more effort than we expect. Our outlook on matters of faith and faithfulness has been corrupted by consumerist, have-it-your-way culture. Everything now, everything just like you want it. Have your, like Burger King, right? What does Burger King say? Have it your way, right? Have it your way. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. That's their whole thing. And that's what culture is all about. Have it your way. But that's not what faith is like at all. And so... We've developed this sort of inability to consistently trust in things that we can't see because we're constantly conditioned by everything else in the world around us to just trust what you can see or taste or touch or smell, all those things, right? But the author of Hebrews had something to offer regarding this. The testimony of people in the course of history who honored God and trusted in the unseen things of God and then their stories, what happened, right? And they're not always great stories as far as what happens to the people. When you look at it, we, we, we kick it off with Abraham, Abel, he, bad things for Abel, right? I mean, in verses four through nine, we get sort of part of the story of the faith, of history of the faith, and Abel's the first one we cross, and he offered this sacrifice, and all that's good, but then what happens? Cain kills him. It doesn't end up well for Abel. But Abel was faithful. Abel did what he was supposed to do. And so it does end up well eternally for, for Abel. Right? And then we get Enoch, and he was taken up without dying, which is a whole other thing. Who knows how that works or what that looks like? Or I, I mean, I have no idea. Then there's Noah, who in a place... It'd be about like here where there's not really much rain. Definitely not enough rain for a giant boat full of animals, right? And yet Noah builds this boat. I don't know if y'all have seen the movie, uh, is it Evan Almighty? Where he builds the boat. It's uh, Steve Carell. It's kind of a goofy movie. But it's, it's, a, it's a play on this story of a guy who faithfully does this thing. 
And in, this, in the movie, Evan, Steve Carell's character, he keeps growing a beard, he can't shave off like he's a big prophet or something, it's really goofy. But he, he builds the boat. And so as goofy and dumb as this movie may be, it actually kind of tells the story of faith. He faithfully builds the boat, and then it rains. And then the dam breaks, and there's a huge flood, and the boat saves people. I mean, that's, that's kind of, Noah's a better version of that story, of course, but that's, that's what's going on with Noah. Noah lives in a place where it rained, and God says, hey, build a giant boat. And so Noah builds a giant boat. Okay. I can't even imagine. If God told me to build a giant boat, I'd be like, for what? Like, at least I would ask questions. And Noah builds the boat. Abraham, basically, now I'm going to sum up his whole story in one little phrase, went for a long walk. <laughs> right? Abraham lives in a place called Ur of Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq, I believe, right? Over to Babylon, that area. He's from there. And God says, hey, I want you to go over here. And so Abraham goes, and he has to follow the river, basically, up all the way north. He doesn't go cut across the desert. He would never make it. So they go all the way up north, follow the river, and then they come all the way back down into what becomes the promised land. And that's the area everybody's fighting over ever since, right? The fight over today. Israel and Hamas fighting over pieces of that. That's the area that Abraham goes for a walk in. Only he goes past it the first time. I don't know why. He goes all the way to Egypt. It's almost like he missed it. He missed the turnoff. And he goes to Egypt. But he comes back, and, and he's, he's a wanderer. And, and his sons, Isaac and Jacob, they all live as wanderers. They live in tents. They herd sheep. They, they do, they're Bedouins, basically. Right? But it's because God said to Abraham, I want you to get all your stuff and go over here. And Abraham's like, okay. And he packs up and he leaves. I mean, imagine that. Some, some of us sitting here have lived here most of our lives, right? Not everybody. I've only been here for 10 years, right? But, but some of y'all have been here for 60 years or more, right? About 53. 53, right? And imagine God coming to you Walter, and saying, I want you to pick up everything and move to East Texas. I mean, that would be crazy, right? You'd probably have some questions. But that's, that's sort of what faith looks like sometimes, because God has this bigger plan going on that we don't always see all those dimensions, and, and God doesn't map it all out for us and tell us everything. God just says, I need you to take this next step. Take this next step. Trust me here. Take this next step. And who knows what happens next? We don't know. But we take the step and we find out. And then God works and moves. And it's good. Maybe not always in the present, like with Abel, but eternally, it's good. Right? Now, we can keep dissecting each part of this and talk about it in way more detail. I could spend hours. Um, but, but let's focus on Abel for just a second. Let's come back to him. Abel offered what's, what Scripture says is a more acceptable sacrifice. So we know that uh, Cain was working the ground, and he brought 
fruit from the ground, produce, whatever it was, corn, you know, grain, whatever it was. He brought that. And it's not that Cain's was not acceptable. It was what he was supposed to do, right? But it says God regarded Abel's, favored. He looked on it, he paid attention to it. And it was the, Abel offered the firstborn from his flock of sheep. And God liked that. That's, that's the story. So what we see then is that as a result, Cain gets mad, takes Abel out of the field, kills him. And Abel's death, God says his, his blood is calling out to me from the ground. Right? And then in verse 4, we find out that Abel, says after his death, is commended. He's martyreo. Abel is a martyr. This is life bore witness and gave evidence through his faith to make these sacrifices. Even though he died, he still speaks. Now, when I first read that, I remember thinking, what do you mean he still speaks? Like, he's not talking to anybody. Anybody here from Abel lately? Like, nobody, you know, it's... But the, the idea is that the story of his life is still bearing testimony. He's dead, but we're still talking about him. You know what I mean? You say that of all these guys. It did, I mean, nobody that was alive in the scriptures is still alive except for Jesus, as far as that goes. We know that everyone will be brought back in the resurrection. That's our hope that we're hoping in. But none of them are still alive. Abraham, Moses, Noah... Peter, Paul, Mary, none of them, right? Their faithfulness outlasted their lives. Is that going to be true for us? Will your faithfulness be a testimony long after you are gone? Will mine? Does our faith speak? Or is it quiet? Because faithfulness is not about living quietly as a good citizen. It's not about being a patriotic American or winning the culture war. Faithfulness is about our lives being a testimony to God and the things of God. To the unseen things of God growing in us until they produce visible fruit. The invisible producing visible results. And notice that in every story that's included, there's this sort of formula. By faith, the person did something. By faith, they did something. By faith, every time. So, are we doing something? Individually or as a congregation? Are we being faithful here with what God has entrusted to us? Are we leaving behind stories that will outlast us long after we're gone? Not for our sake, mind you. Not so that, you know, a hundred years from now, people are still saying Kent Barlow. Not, not for that. But so that the faith in the story of my life lasts beyond me. And people see that faith and they're inspired by it. Right? We have those stories. 
I know most of you do, you have a, a grandparent or aunt or uncle or cousin or somebody who was faithful, who helped lead you to Jesus. And maybe they're gone, but their faithfulness has outlasted them, right? That's what we're talking about. So verses 10 and then in uh, 14 through 16, we get kind of a curveball. We read that all these faithful people in the Old Testament were looking for a city and a country. And not just any city, a city that has a foundation designed by God and built by God. Now, if you're just coming across this idea, you might think, well, you know, Israel and Jerusalem. City, country and a city. Right? That's how that works. But in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, Paul wrote, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then in Revelation 21, 14, when describing the new Jerusalem, John wrote that the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Paul clarified all of this in Ephesians 2, 19-20, saying, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Well, that's the city, but what about the country then? The homeland is a, a better country, a heavenly country is the language. And this isn't I mean, pardon me, but this isn't about making America great again. It's just not. It's an entirely different country. One that can't be seen with our eyes, but in our spirit. One that doesn't have boundaries. The author of Hebrews was referring to believers here. right? People who had given their lives to Jesus, to the, the people of God who were following Jesus and trusting in Him as Savior and King. And that leads from them 2,000 years of faithfulness to us. This is why I'm always saying that until Jesus returns and brings all of this full circle, we are where the kingdom of God is. Right here. Not in this building, but right here among us. We are where the kingdom of God is. That's the church. We are the pioneers of the new world. There's all the more reason we don't need to be tangled up in the one that is passing away. It's exactly what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7.31. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. All the kingdoms, all the... It doesn't mean the world's going to cease to exist, but the way the world is, that's dying off. Because Jesus has come and is king and has established a whole new thing, and we are a part of it. And anyone, anyone can be a part of it. Just come to Jesus. That's all it takes. Now, this is why the author of Hebrews was encouraging believers to follow in the footsteps of those who saw themselves as strangers and exiles in the world. It's not that we don't belong here. It's that we don't belong to the broken version. You with me? The earth is the Lord's. We're made from it. 
We're made for it. That's what the whole Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden thing was all about. Before they were removed from the garden, they were meant to take care of it, to nurture it, to help it grow. And I, I think this is still our calling today to be faithful, to exercise faithfulness, consistency, reliability. We need to be caring for each other and the earth. Too many Christians care about too many other things. Too many are tangled up in the world that is passing away trying to do the things of God with the ways of man. But that's not faithfulness. It's actually the opposite. It's a complete failure to trust in God's way, in God's timing, in God's power to do what was promised. Now, the rest of the chapter offers more stories, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob traveling around, trusting God, following him. Moses, the children of Israel crossing the sea, overtaking Jericho, coming into the promised land. And even Rahab, who was a prostitute, who was not an Israelite at all, but she protected the spies. And she's not originally part of Israel's story, but she becomes part of the story that leads directly to Jesus. And many others are mentioned and what they went through. And then it wraps it all up in verse nine, uh, 39. Sorry, it said, they did not receive what was promised. So did God fail? Or will they join us when the great day of the Lord Will they see exactly what we see when Jesus returns and brings to completion his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Are we faithful enough to die in our faith having not received everything that was promised? If Jesus doesn't return in any of our lifetimes, won't we all still be reunited when he does? This is why we need to practice lives of everyday faithfulness. Wake up in the morning, be faithful. Come to afternoon, be faithful. Get ready for bed, be faithful. Even in the little things, because they all build up together, right? We need to leave the pathway lit for those who follow after us should the Lord wait longer than our lifetimes to return. Now I'm convinced, hear me say this, I'm convinced that God is not done with Marathon or this congregation. We have a town to love. We have people to feed. We have people to clothe. We have people to encourage. We are the city on a hill that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.14. The light that shows the way. And by the power of the Holy Spirit producing the fruit in us, we are growing as people of faithfulness, trusting in the will and the way and the timing of the Lord. Will you pray with me?